Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. We're talking with John Guandolo, the president and founder of Understanding the Threat, the only organization in our nation that provides a detailed assessment of the enemy threat in our own local area, Law Enforcement Investigated Solutions. He has a TV show, by the way, which can be found at www.wvwtv.com. He's the author of a very important book, Raising a Jihadi Generation, which may be purchased on his website and at Amazon.com. So, John, so we've talked about a hundreds, really hundreds of years of expansion of really jihad through jihad of islam and as you so aptly put this is not a religion it is a a way of life uh really a collective way of life uh if you want to look at it that way and some people characterize the crusades as being religious wars uh I don't know if you can characterize it that way, if what we're fighting was not really a religion. I think the Crusades can accurately be described as, uh, in the sense that people consider Islam a religion, uh, religious wars, but I think it's more appropriately described as the, uh, uh, the defense of innocence for the sake of good by the Crusade and the uh, the battles in the, that first crusade um, against a, a, an easily definable barbaric and evil system that is Islam. And I, what I think is despicable, I think is a, a, a word that I don't really ever use, but it just came to me. It's, it really is despicable that um, people defend people who consider themselves, and, and even Christian leaders, um, will defend Islam, saying it's a religion of peace, um, and I and many of them do it because they are defending Muslim people. And I think you need to draw the I believe people need to draw the distinction between Muslims and Islam. Islam is a barbaric, evil system, and any objective look at that would, by any reasonable person, would uh, make that self-evident. Uh, but individual Muslims, uh, you know, some Muslims do not subscribe to Sharia and do not want to live under it and certainly don't want to impose it on other people. But people who practice and call themselves Muslims but do not practice Islam 
the way they're commanded to by their God, Allah, and uh, following in the example of the most perfect man, according to Islam, Muhammad, uh, those people who practice something different than what Islam requires, that doesn't constitute a different version of Islam. Those are people that are apostates uh, in the eyes of Islam. Uh, and, and so we need to look at that, you know, from an individual standpoint. However, I do, it does need to be made clear that what practicing is not Islam. Um, but in what I do and what my company, under, what our organization does, what Understanding the Threat does as a national security consulting organization is we identify real threats, be it from the Marxist movement, Russia, China, uh, or the Islamic movement. And our primary focus is on the Islamic movement because it, in our view, it presents the most immediate uh, danger to our liberties, not only because of what it is, but because the fact that leaders in the West and, and leaders in the United States are included in that are wholly ignorant of what Islam is and uh, have created foreign policies and domestic counterterrorism strategies that don't even take Islam into account which means they will always necessarily be ineffective. Why do you think that is? You know, if you read enough and if you understand history uh, and you take time to educate yourself and talk to people such as you and, and go to websites such as Understanding the Threat, you come away with a pretty truthful picture about what we are facing. How can government leaders whose job it is to protect the country and protect its citizens just completely ignore this? Well, um, there are a number of answers to that, uh, that, that particular question. Um, there are two big categories. Let me start with that. But before I get to those categories, I just, the, the topical answer is there are many reasons why individuals in leadership positions are not speaking truth about Islam. Some are grossly ignorant and unprofessional in their duties, especially if they hold positions of national security importance, um, like CIA director, DHS secretary, FBI director, um, you know, counterterrorism advisor to the president of the United States, national security advisor. You know, you're a member of Congress on the Homeland Security Committee or the Intelligence Committee. You have no excuse professionally for not knowing this. You're, you're unprofessional, and I would argue when Americans are dead because you, of your unprofessional uh, conduct by not knowing the threat, we call that criminal negligence in our legal system. So I just kind of throw that on the table, but there are other reasons. Some people are scared uh, to actually do something, which is not an excuse. It's still unprofessional behavior. Some people uh, are more worried about their next promotion. Well, that to me is much more nefarious. And some people in government are actively supporting the enemy, and that's sedition and treason. And so that needs to be handled accordingly, legally. Um, so you've got a wide array of, of reasons why uh, people don't respond to this. But let me go back to your the, the point of your question. Why don't they know it? This entire war is a war of narratives, and it's an information war. 
in the military, we call the, this the information battle space. And their entire war is in the information battle space, and they're, they're kicking our butts. They're winning significantly in that. So it's, it's, a, it's a war of narratives. And the narratives that they were able to get our leaders to adopt on 9-11 and since 9-11 is that Islam is a religion of peace, that it doesn't stand for the violence that, at the time, al-Qaeda. Now, you know, all the jihadi groups, al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, Hamas, Hezbollah, Boko Haram, Abu Sayyaf, um, all of these organizations, organized violent jihadi organizations, but but then that also includes the Muslim Brotherhood, Tabliki Jamaat, Jamaat Islami, the Taliban, all of these uh, other organizations. Taliban obviously is a violent component of the movement, but you've got these um, other groups that use violence, but that are primarily using the political uh, state in which they're in uh, to undermine those systems and portray themselves as friendly individuals and organizations. And we just talked about the Muslim Brotherhood. And when we look at that the narrative has been so successful because the organizations and individuals the United States government has relied upon to tell it about Islam, we can identify those organizations and individuals as being specifically Muslim Brotherhood, uh, leaders uh, and organizations. Well, this is why 17 plus years after 9/11, the government is catastrophically clueless about Islam because we're getting our information from hostile entities. You know, this is really very interesting because, you know, <clears throat> if you continue to look at history after 1683 which was the major defeat of uh, uh, the Ottoman Empire at the gates of Vienna. Islam kind of went into a period of, uh, what would you call it, a latency period, or, or it's kind of, it took a break for a while, and it wasn't until the Muslim Brotherhood surfaced in 1924 that we saw this resurgence of the uh, the jihad, so to speak, which is the spread of Islam through uh, the sword. And what you've also alluded to is what we would call stealth jihad, where we have jihad occurring, but it is by stealth. And the Muslim Brotherhood, you so correctly put, is really at the basis of all this, isn't it? It, it is. And you just hit on a really good fact that I, that I want to... Um, I want to pinpoint for people because not understanding Sharia on the part of our leaders and on the part of, uh, I would say, our thinkers in our society has led us to come up with all kinds of ways to explain our history and what's going on right now. If you understand Sharia, you understand that when the Muslim community has the ability and the, the, the wherewithal to wage jihad, they must. They must wage jihad. That's an obligation, both a communal obligation and an individual responsibility on all Muslims under certain circumstances. And Sharia lays out what those circumstances are. But here's the point. 
when we see at the gates of Vienna the defeat of the Muslims and then the, uh, the British putting their boot on the neck of these Muslim communities, literally, and I mean this in a positive way, they are putting them at bay and saying, we're going to crush you, you're going to stay where you are. That keeps the Muslims at bay because they're not able to wage jihad because the West says, no, we are going to keep you um, in a position where you cannot do what you just did for, you know, uh, 1,200 years at the time or a 1,000 years at, at that time. So then what we see is uh, there's still pockets where Islam is fighting, and you see small jihads, and you see in the 18th century, the United States, before it's even established, but the colonies, and what after 1776 we call the United States of America, dealing with the Barbary states, um, and we go to war against them, but at the global scene, you still got the British really with their boot on the neck of much of the Muslim world. But as they release that, and then, <clears throat> excuse me, as you, uh, I think, have a good perspective on this history, Dr. Dan, is that then we see, as the Brotherhood, we see the fall of the Ottoman Empire and the establishment in the early 20s of the Brotherhood, and then them formally being established, you know, as the, the Ikhwan in 1928 and establishing bylaws in kind of a formalized way. And then as they grow and expand from the uh, just in Egypt into the broader Middle East, and then we see that Saudi Arabia discovers oil and now has a financial means to support the jihad, then they start doing that. They start pouring hundreds of thousands, then millions, and then billions of dollars over years into the global jihad. And so what do we see in the 1960s and 17, uh, excuse me, 1960s and 70s? We see an increase in hijackings of aircraft. We see increased uh, violence in the Muslim world against the nation-state of Israel. And all of this is happening because the Muslims have the ability and the wherewithal to wage the jihad. And so they must, and so they are. And now they've continued that in the 1980s. You know, we see increase in, quote, terrorism around the world. Um, we see the, you know, the attack in 1983 on the U.S. Embassy in Lebanon, the destruction of the marine barracks and the killing of uh, so many people and then all the way up through the 80s and uh, attacks the first attack in the united states by al-qaeda is the killing of Mayer kahani and the anti uh, 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 adl and uh, and others um and so what do we what do we do with that well we don't know how to put that into perspective you do and hopefully now your your listeners do, where you see, uh, you know, the the attack in the First World Trade Center in 1993, and then the attack at Kobar Towers in Saudi Arabia, and then you know other attacks taking place 
culminating with the attack on the USS Cole, and uh, and then finally with 9-11. And if we don't understand the historical perspective that you have graciously allowed me uh, to lay out, well, then I think if you don't understand it's rooted in the teachings of Islam and the most perfect example, and I'll just leave this this point with this thought for you and your audience. Muhammad's the perfect example. So the reason Muslims step their right foot into the mosque first is because Muhammad did it. The reason that a 60-year-old man can marry a 8-year-old girl is because Muhammad married a 6-year-old and consummated the relationship when she was 9. That's authoritative Islamic doctrine. Muhammad said, I've been commanded to fight until they testified no God but Allah, Muhammad's the messenger of Allah, and then he weighed, waged numerous battles against the non-Muslims. You know, Muhammad uh, authorized the killing of people that mocked him, right? He supported all of this behavior that we're seeing. So when you realize that ISIS, the Islamic State, and Al-Qaeda, they're not uh, un-Islamic. They are doing exactly what Muhammad did. They are the armies of Muhammad in the 21st century. And so that this long history is just continuing. You know, you quoted verses from the Quran which really specify everything that you just said, that that the Muslims can use any means whatsoever to subdue, subdue and conquer. They can lie, cheat, steal, murder, kill, whatever is necessary to spread the concept of Islam throughout the world and reestablish the caliphate. And that's really what they're trying to do, is it not? That's it in a nutshell. And, and to put it, put it if, if I may use the analogy, to put a cherry on top of what you just said, to break it down as simply as possible, I've found this to be effective. Islam divides the world into two parts. The house of Islam, where Islamic law, Sharia, is the law of the land, and everywhere else, which is called the house of war. And the whole stated purpose of Islam is to simply uh, eliminate the house of war until the entire world is under the house of Islam, under Sharia, and then you have peace, according to Islam. And the reality is, is that the, the means to do that is called jihad. And that's it. That's the purpose of Islam. So you've nailed it. We're talking to John Guandolo, the president and founder of Understanding the Threat. Uh, please uh, read his book, Raising a Jihadi Generation. You can purchase his book on their website, www.understandingthethreat.com or at amazon.com. So, we have brought, we've talked about the history of Islam, what we've talked about Muhammad, but obviously what we all are, must be and should be concerned about is Sharia law, the imposition of Sharia law, and what does that mean in terms of uh, the law itself? What is Sharia law? What does it entail? Why, why is that such an enormous threat? Well, Again, as a summary, Sharia comes from the Quran and the, the Sunnah, which is the example of the Prophet Muhammad. 
and those are recorded uh, authoritatively uh, by the reports of what Muhammad did and said and by his biography. So, uh, and Islam teaches it, which is why they teach this to their children, uh, because he's the most perfect example. And again, he waged war. Personally, was there when up to 900 Jews were beheaded after the Battle of the Trench, and he participated in that. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The rights to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Everything, everything, everything gonna be all right this morning.